You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, I want to start with a little bit of a pop quiz, and this is only for those of you guys that don't know me. So if you know me or you know my story, you have to be quiet. Don't spoil this for the rest of everyone else. It's not actually all that fun, but nonetheless, it's the best the sermon is going to be this morning. So here's my, here's my pop quiz. If you don't know me, I'm going to ask you to guess where ministry for me started. All right? Guess for me where my story of ministry started. Before the first time I was a pastor, before the first time I was an elder, what occurred before? Anybody got guesses? fantastic. All right, here, here's what we're going to do. Here we go. All right, let's pray again, okay? Because apparently that one didn't set in all that great for you. Let's try this again. So far I have one, I'm going to guess, tongue-in-cheek guess of juvenile hall, okay? It wasn't tongue-in-cheek. This is coming from another pastor, and so he knows maybe a personal anecdote in his life. Where else? Any other guesses? I did come from the land of Chicago, but you know my story, Andrew. Are you cheating? You're trying to help. Good. Good. Anyone else? Okay, Texas. Yes, I'm not actually looking for a physical location. This entire analogy has bombed hard. Hard. I was a rebel. Is that what someone said? That is true. I was. I did have family. You guys are terrible. Mark. I, 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 yes, this body once played high school football. All right. We're going to abandon this totally, utterly. Uh, We're going to scrub the live video of this portion of the sermon and the podcast as well. I took, nope, not even taking any more comments. This is no longer interactive. I took what I believe should be the prototypical path towards ministry. I came into ministry from Homeland Security and counterterrorism, right? Uh, So we got to do these assessments before we we planted Mercy's Door with a bunch of people, and they would ask us, like, hey, tell us your story. You know, what did did ministry look like? Were you kind of raised in the church, and then you kind of became like a youth leader, and then... Maybe you started to help out with the youth group, and then you went off to seminary, and then from seminary you came to plant a church. And I would always be like, no, um, second, very close to that story, very close to that story. Uh, I had no interest in ministry, was in and out of the church early on, and was working in counterterrorism when the Lord decided, you know what would be an easy transition? Let's get you into pastoral ministry. Uh, And I tell you that story, besides to just confuse everyone in the beginning of the sermon, to say this, I had no inclination almost my entire life that I was going to ever be a pastor. I can remember two moments total where the thought even vaguely entered into my mind. The first one was in my first year of marriage. Rachel and I had gotten married. We were expecting our first child. 
uh, our relationship was in dire straits. We were separated from the church. We were 13 to 15 hours away from any family. I was in grad school. We were a mess. And the Lord led us into a church and began doing some amazingly kind, redemptive, restorative, beautiful work. And for the first time I thought, I could see myself wanting to do this for other people. The second time had occurred 15 years before that. Early on in childhood, I remember for no good reason that I can recount to this day that I decided to turn off my like Nintendo 64 and write an outline of a sermon. I don't know why. I don't know what came over me. We'll call it the, the, the gracious spirit of the Lord. But I wrote an outline of a sermon. And I wrote it the, the day or two after hearing for the first time Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. And this is what those verses say. Since then, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, then let us hold fast our confession. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but instead one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I remember writing up the outline of the sermon and entitling it, The Perfect Savior. I was consumed, though not long enough, with the thought that we didn't just have a Savior, but we had the perfect Savior. Hebrews said he was so the perfect Savior that he could even sympathize with our weaknesses and our temptations. And throughout the rest of Scripture, if you read it clearly, it declares and confirms this to be true, that he is the perfect Savior. The perfect King, the perfect Lord, the one and only one that we desperately need. And this thought that came to my mind as a child has become the marker of ministry for me. It's the driving force behind why my family and I are in ministry, what my wife and I talk about when we dream of ministry. It's the thought that the Lord might use me, not just to introduce people to Jesus, but to help them and to help me see that His presence, that His glory and His work is far better, far greater, far beyond anything we could ever fathom. This Advent sermon series is entitled Loved Beyond Belief, and that title came from a phrase that I used to close every service from the very first time that we gathered as a church after the benediction, the declaration to the people of God, you are loved beyond belief. And that is universally true. And it's universally true because of the height and depth and breadth of God's love. And it's universally true because of our inadequacy to be able to grasp that height and depth and breadth. It's one of the beautiful things about Christianity. You will show up on Judgment Day, the first day that you behold Christ face to face, 
And your response, at least in part, will be, how did I miss this? How did I paint you so small? How did I not know that you were actually this good? And this has been my prayer behind this sermon series for Advent. That through the Christmas story, we'd get our eyes once again and that God may graciously allow us even just a minuscule amount to behold the height and depth and breadth and to know the love of Christ Jesus. So far in this sermon series, as we've been looking at this story, we've beheld this unimaginable love. First, a love that comes out of brokenness. We watched as in the lineage of Jesus, we see that the Lord doesn't just love us in spite of our brokenness, but he loves us in the midst of it, out of it. He takes our brokenness and creates something beautiful, like like a, a pane of glass that is whole and intact that we break. And the Lord doesn't just restore the pane of glass, but he takes the shards And he makes a mosaic that is far more beautiful to behold than even the original pain was. Love that comes out of brokenness. And then last week we looked at love that perseveres. That our God from the very beginning had planned the story of redemption. And while this book in the history of humanity, my biography and yours, is littered with rejection and rebellion against the good and gracious rule and reign of our God, none of it could stop the persevering love with which he loved us. None of it could stop him from doing exactly what he promised he would do. We've looked at love that comes out of brokenness, love that perseveres, and finally today we're looking at love that descends. The Gospel Coalition, uh, a website and resource that I love. If you've never been on it, go home after this, type in the Gospel Coalition and enjoy. They had an Advent devotional this morning. And on this topic of love that descends, they spoke to speak of God or the love of God that descends or lowers almost seems blasphemous. They wrote this. Many religions throughout history have acknowledged the value of humility, humility of humanity, but none has ever dared to speak of a humble God. And the reason is simple. The notion of humility applied to deity is seen as a categorical mistake, an oxymoron, seemingly mutually exclusive. So the claim that the biblical God, the God, not simply a member of a pantheon of gods, not an option on a menu of deities, but the one creator of all, the claim that he would stoop to serve his creatures all the way down to a torturous cross is not just startling, it's scandalous. It's scandalous. To think of our God and his love as descending, lowering. It's scandalous because we, as people, we celebrate and we aspire not to humility, not to lowering, but to glorious heights. 
It's in everything. It's everywhere we look. It's in our songs. It's in our phrases. Right? For those of you who are, let's just say, older than 30 or are really into things, all things retro, if I told you that I would like to know the lyrics to the theme song to the Jeffersons, could you tell me them? Moving on up. Where are we moving to? The east side. And where in the east side? Yes, a deluxe apartment in the sky. Yes. Do you ever notice that no one is trying to move on down to the basement apartment? The one that's moldy and damp and has no windows? We always want to move on up. Right? Spiritually speaking, we, we speak of mountaintop experiences. No one wants to go into the lows of the valleys. All of us want to climb the social and corporate ladder. And no one wants to be knocked down a few pegs. Right? Even humanity, just after their exile from Eden, what did they try and do? They determined that they would build a tower upward into the sky in order to be equal with God. We desire our lives to be moving up and to the right. But the story of Christ, our Savior, our King, God incarnate, it looks vastly different. His is a story of descending, of lowering this descending, lowering love is far better than anything we could dream of. Today, in Luke chapter 2, in this account of the birth of Jesus, I want to look at the beauty and the gifts that Christ's descending love brings to us. It brings us comfort, it brings us family. And it brings us atonement. It brings us comfort. It brings us family. And it brings us atonement. First, it brings us comfort. Luke's recounting of the story of the birth of Jesus begins like this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. When I kind of begin my sermon prep, what I'll typically do before any commentaries, before any kind of outside resources, is I'll just get the passage alone uh, with myself in a quiet space and just ask, God, as I read this, would you just would you speak to me? Would you show me what it is you want me to know? And as I began to read this passage, this word decree it, it, it felt like the bass drum hit of the first couple of verses. The, the, the word decree in, in Greek is maybe a word that you've heard of before. It's the word dogma. It, it means an edict, a, a ruling, a, a truth, or even stronger, a, a law. And if you put yourself in the shoes of Joseph and Mary here, in Luke chapter 2, under the weight of a decree of Caesar Augustus, you begin to see the truth of Joseph and Mary and just how helpless they really were. 
Mary is a woman in full term. I don't know what this feels like, but we have five kids, and I know that my wife does. And I know by the end of it, she's typically sleeping on the floor while I'm in our beautiful, soft, pillowy, king-size bed because she can't sleep and she can't get comfortable. And here's Mary, full term. Her and her husband are forced out of their homes, away from their place that they have lived, on a 90-mile journey across treacherous terrain in the midst of a desert winter because of the decision of another that they can do nothing about. But it's not just Mary and Joseph that are driven helpless by the decree of Caesar. You know, we read this passage and we read this decree as kind of a historical fact marking the time of Jesus' birth, and it is. Or maybe we read it as simply kind of one of those things that God kind of just ordains passively in order to kind of mark out the specific circumstances of Jesus. And certainly God is sovereign over all things. But this decree is also a grievous, blasphemous, idolatrous act of humanity. Who in the world is Caesar to command the people of God to do anything? Who is Caesar to make demands of the woman who would bear God the Son? Who is Caesar to impact at all the most miraculous day in history? But here is God, condescending. Here he is again, graciously, being long-suffering, placing his very incarnation under the decree of evil, tyranny, arrogance, and sin. Because remember, the child that is about to be born under this decree is the same child who will grow to shush the winds and the waves. Colossians describes Jesus, this child to be born, thus For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, just like Caesar. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. But it doesn't look like Colossians 1 in the story. It seems instead that this unborn child and his parents are helpless. They look powerless. They are not driving their own destiny, but they're at the mercy of other powers, it seems. See, the the, the story of Christ's birth and, in fact, his entire life continues on in this trajectory. He's forced by the decree of another to be born in Bethlehem. He's not born in the upper room of a family home where the family would gather, but instead amongst animals because others have decided there's no room for him. He's not born to a coronation or a family celebration, likely because his parents were pushed away as unfit or sullied or unfit. 
suitable. And it goes on in his ministry as well. We often read that Jesus is harassed by the crowds and driven out of the cities. He goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he is rejected. His life is threatened. And eventually he's arrested, bound, and beaten by human hands that Colossians tell us he created. For the life of God incarnate, the King of Kings, his is a story where he seems fragile. And dare we even say it weak. But that's because he's fully human. And humans at their core are fragile. It seems every week I read some sort of news story, whether local, personal, or national, where some man or woman at the peak of fitness and health dies. You guys know it to be true. We can be shattered whether by life and evil or the sins of another, in a moment, no matter how strong or prepared we think we are, we are an infinitesimal speck on a giant rock spinning around at a thousand miles an hour, hurtling around a star at 67,000 miles an hour. We're weak and small and finite, but we have great comfort in Christ because he took on our great weakness. When Rachel and I first got married, I've told this story before, we, we watched a show called The West Wing back when Netflix mailed you DVDs. And it's become one of my favorite shows. I'll watch it every couple of years all the way through. And, and in the midst of this show, there's an interaction between two men. An older man that had seen difficulty in life and a younger man walking in the midst of difficulty. And he tells him a story. He says to him, there was a man walking down the street, minding his own business when he fell into a hole. The walls in the midst of this hole were so steep he couldn't get out. And he waited until finally a doctor walked by and he cried out to him, Doctor, can you help me? And the doctor paused and he wrote a prescription and he threw it down in the hole and he walked on. Later, a priest wandered by, he said, and he yelled up and he said, Father, can you help me? And the priest wrote out a prayer. He threw it down in the hole, and he walked on. And then finally, a friend walks by. And the man in the hole sees him, and he says, Bill, please, can you help me? Bill says, sure. And he jumps down into the hole. And our guy looks at him, and he says, what are you doing? Now we're both down here. And Bill looks at him, and he says, yeah. But I've been down here before, and I know the way out. One commentator, speaking of Jesus entering into our frailty, says this, Our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. As we sink further into pain, we sink further into isolation. But the Bible corrects this. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We are never alone. 
That sorrow that feels isolating, so unique, was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. We do not have a Savior who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but instead in that sympathy grants us great comfort. Jesus beckons those who are weary and heavy laden to come, and he offers them comfort and rest. And he's offering them comfort and rest that only he knows as the true Son of God, but he's also offering that rest to them perfectly because he also knows what it is like to be weary and heavy laden as the true Son of Man. The descending love of God offers us comfort, and it also offers us family. If you asked me my favorite gospel, I would probably tell you it's the gospel of John. I love the way that he writes. I love the emotion that he evokes, the way that he paints pictures. I've oftentimes wished that John had written a nativity story. Now, just in case you want to fact check me on there, he did, but his starts something like before the existence of time. I'm thinking more 3, 4 BC, okay? Luke, that gives us this account, is a doctor, a historian. Matthew, when he writes his account, seems more intent on tying the birth back to the Old Testament prophecies. Neither of them seem to kind of wade into the depths of the human experience, the emotions in the atmosphere around the birth of Christ. But even here in Luke 2, if we look closely, we'll find it. After Luke tells us about the decree, he begins to offer us some details about Jesus, his lineage, his family, and the circumstances surrounding his birth. And, and honestly, it, it, it sounds like it starts off fairly promising. Right? First, he tells us that Joseph went up out of his hometown of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, while Galilee and Nazareth were home for Joseph and Mary, these were rural, Gentile-dominated providences, and honestly, Nazareth was backwoods, backwater town in the midst of a Gentile-dominated location. And so, even though there's a decree, at least, at least, they're being sent off from Galilee to a far more respectable place like Judea, where the capital is. And while Jesus is not born in the capital city, we are told he's born in the city of the great King David. And in fact, he's being born as the son to the descendant of that great King David. Maybe... Just maybe the birth story of our king is looking up. But then it takes a quick turn. Because Jesus is not being born, we're told, to a prominent Davidic celebrated marriage. But instead, he's born, being born to a woman who, though she is 
betrothed to Joseph is not married to him. And in fact, we're told that Jesus, the king, the son, will not be a biological descendant of this great king, but at best, he will be adopted. And as we know, Jesus' ties through Joseph are simply the tip of the story. The tragedy continues as it continues down. When Joseph and Mary show up in their ancestral home to the city of David, from which David hails, they're not taken in by doting family, which this town should have been filled with. They're not even taken in by extended family or distant relatives. Instead, they find themselves nestled amongst animals in a spare space belonging to someone who's never mentioned. While Jesus is born to a mother and father, the details of his birth screams that he's being born alone, isolated, rejected, almost an orphan. You know, we, we, we speak and we sing about the conception of Mary out of wedlock and the travel to Bethlehem and the manger crib as these kind of Christmas trappings or these Christmas carol songs. But they were not moments of celebration. They were symbols of isolation. This is what Jesus was born into, but it's not where he came from. See, Christ the King, God the Son, comes from the perfect relationship and the perfect family, with perfect love, perfect honor, perfect respect from all eternity past. Jesus is born into humanity alone, seemingly, and at the bottom, but he comes from the top, from the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has existed from eternity past in all harmony. And I know it makes our head hurt to think of it. But to get our arms around it is a necessity. Because in what is oftentimes described as the great exchange, the ultimate Son, became an orphan so that a race of orphans could finally become beloved sons and daughters. You know, I know in pastoring that some of you guys in the midst of holiday seasons are preparing for a time of great cheer, of family events, of family reunions, of smiles and laughters and celebration. And I know for others, it's the opposite. You know, we use this word family a lot at Mercy's Door, and we do it intentionally. Because that word is meant to describe certain things. It's meant to describe being known and loved and valued and secure family is meant to feel unshakable, unendable, 
unaffected and resolute even in the face of failures and stress and circumstances that would cause other relationships to diminish, end, or dissolve. And while you and I may not experience that type of family here on this earth now in this moment, we're told that Jesus enters into dysfunction and scandal and rejection and poverty in this world. He steps away from his place beside his beloved Father and in so doing offers to us an eternal place beside the Father in his presence at the feast of his great joy in a place that is overtly forever, eternally, never-endingly secure because of Him, because of Christ. The descending love of God gives us a family that even the best family here on earth can never touch. He gives us a family that we will never lose, that will never fail us, that will never abandon us. The descending love of God brings us great comfort and it offers to us a loving family. But perhaps the best is saved for last. It also offers to us atonement. This past summer, my oldest son turned 13. And so just as a little uh, celebration of him moving into young manhood, uh, Rachel and I went and we asked him, we said, hey man, let's take a trip. We've got five kiddos, and so one-on-one time with mom and dad is sometimes sparse, few, and far between. And so we said, hey, where do you want to go? And he said, hey, I, I, I want to go see a, a Detroit Tigers baseball game because him, like his father, is a sucker for punishment. And he said, I want to go to Cedar Point, and I want to ride every roller coaster. And I said, fantastic to the first one. Let me find some Dramamine for the second one. Okay. So we, we go to the game, we have all sorts of fun, then we make our way down to Sandusky, Ohio, um, and, uh, and we, we go to Cedar Point, and we start to ride these roller coasters, and Rachel does the smart thing, and she's like, hey, you guys go and just have a lot of fun, and I'll just, I'll be waiting for you, you know, and just, you know, pick, pick you up when you're done. And I'm like, I will get you back for this. Um... So we start out on some easy roller coasters, and when I say that, I mean I kept my lunch down, okay? And then we went to this one called the Val Raven. And I don't know if you guys have been to Cedar Point before, I don't know if you've rode this roller coaster, <clears throat> but it's only like, like five or six rows of like eight kind of like seats across. And, and you stand up, right? And it's got this ridiculous straight up climb, which I hate. By the way, did I tell you I'm afraid, deathly afraid of heights? I am. So straight up climb, and then you get to the top, and it flattens out, and then it, it stops you. And then one by one, it clicks you over the edge, pausing for about 10 or 15 seconds, or maybe an hour, which it felt like, with every row. And of course, my son is like, hey, Dad, we should be in the front row. I'm like, yeah, no, that, that sounds great. It sounds great. Let me just call and make sure our life insurance is still up to date 
for your mom and your remaining four siblings, right? And so we get up there, and it is terrifying. Terrifying. I'm pretty sure there's like a photo in the midst of the ride where Noah is like beaming, and I'm like, <laughs> right, like bending over in some sort of like pose that looks like I'm either terrified or passing a kidney stone or both, right? That's where I found myself. You know what's even worse? That was just the beginning. That was the beginning of this terrifying monstrosity dreamt up by people that need to be hugged, (laughs) right? Like, this is what it was. It was only the beginning, though, but it was a shadow of the end. A a a minister from the 1800s, Henry Ward Beecher, he said this. He said, the beginning of every story is the promise of the end. That in the seeds of the beginning, you can already see what is coming. And in the beginning of the story of Christ, we are already getting a taste of what is to come. Paul tells us the beginning and the end in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But instead, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Luke concludes this initial account of Jesus' birth with, with two details. He tells us that he is born. She wraps him in swaddling cloths and lays him in a manger. These two details are given to the shepherds that are told, the first to be told of the birth of Christ. They said, you will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. Now, the manger detail makes sense. Not a lot of babies would they find laid in a trough in a stone manger. But why in the world would they tell him that he was swaddled in cloths? Almost every child they would have come on that was a newborn or an infant would have been swaddled up tight before they slept. I remember when we had our our first child, Noah, and uh, we had two different types of, like, things that he would sleep in. The the dad clothes and the mom clothes. Now, the mom clothes was just a blanket, but Rachel did this, like, origami jujitsu move and folded him up tight And he was like a little cute baby burrito that didn't move. For the dad, they made this other device that looked like a T with Velcro on it. And so all I had to do was just go one, two, fold the other one on top. And I was like, I I, I was made for this. Right? But the point in swaddling a child now as it was then is to keep the, 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 the frail body and limbs of the child still and secure. Swaddling is a protective 
practice. Now what does this mean for Jesus? It means that the incarnate Son of God, though He may have been eternal, stepped down into humanity and became perishable, fragile, hurtable, and as we'll eventually see, even punchable and killable. This brings us to perhaps the greater meaning of this swaddling cloth. And it's the way that these beginning words foreshadow the ending words. Luke tells us here in verse 2 that Jesus on his first day is wrapped in cloth and laid in a stone manger. At the end of his gospel account in Luke chapter 23, after Jesus, God the Son, the Messiah, was arrested, beaten, mocked, bruised, hung upon a cross, and killed, he writes this, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action to kill Jesus, for he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, he wrapped it in linen cloth, And he laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. Jesus begins his life in the same way that he will end his life here on earth. Wrapped in linen and laid in stone. This is the shape of Jesus' life. It was the shape of the promises of Jesus in the Old Testament. It was the shape of the declarations of the angels to Zechariah and Mary and Joseph. It was the prophecy of Simeon, the first priest who laid eyes on Jesus after his birth. His life would descend into death. Isaiah promised it. Jesus was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one whom Men would hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. Peter confirms that this was for Christ. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. And we're even told that one day in the heavenly realm, at the end of all things, the angels will praise Christ by recounting this gift that he gives to us. Revelation 5 says, and they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open it. For you, you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Easter isn't the only atonement story. Christmas is an atonement story. 
It's the story of the purchase of freedom and cleansing for you and for me. That this child would already begin walking the road to the cross, literally to make us at one with our Heavenly Father, God, and Creator. In our sinful, broken state, we could never ascend to God. And so He descended into the human story. To the point of death, death on the cross, that we might be reconciled with our gracious Creator. His descending love comforts, it offers family, and it atones for us. God's love is a descending love. And there's a funny thing about things that descend. Rachel and I, about a year ago, moved into our new house. And for the first time in our life, we live in a house with a basement, which is really great when you have five kids because you can send them down there and just claim that the unfinished basement is really just a huge fort and hideout. And then it's quiet on the upper level. But we found out something else about houses with basement. The first couple of times that we got heavy rains, we'd go down to our basement and we'd find in the middle of our basement puddles of water. And not the smartest, most intelligent, or construction-savvy man in the world, but I know enough to know that there's not supposed to be puddles of water inside your house. And so we determined to try and figure out what in the world was going on. And so the next few times that it rained heavily, I would go outside and just try and take a look at what was going on. And what we found was that there were just a couple of spots around our house that were graded particularly low. And so the water, while most times would run off away from the house, there were a couple spots where water would pool. And it would pool in these low spots next to the house. But they didn't just stay in the low spots. Then that water would start to run down and it would find in our foundation the weak spots, the cracks or crevices where they could find their way through. And then the water would run down the walls of our basement onto the floor and it would trickle its way down in a stream to the lowest place in our basement. And that's where it would collect. Now this is bad news for me. It's bad news when water finds its way to the lowest point. It's bad news for me and for anyone else that wishes to ever finish their basement. But this downward travel is really good news when it doesn't deal with water, but it deals with love and the love of our God. When his love travels downward to the lowest places and the weakest spots in our life. Christ's love doesn't come partway down. Christ's love doesn't settle on the high places and demand that we meet him there. His love does not simply settle on our surfaces or our approachable parts, but his love comes all the way down to the lowest parts of you, to the weakest parts of you. 
It brings comfort down into the places where only He can bring comfort. It brings belonging and family all the way into your life in the places where you feel like you could never truly be known and belong. And it even brings healing and atonement into the depths of our sin and brokenness. Oh, church, His love is a descending love. And while it is unimaginable as we get our arms around it, as the Lord grants us the gracious gift of faith, it really does change everything. Pray with me.